There were days that we would just see 70, 80 boats coming uh, just from everywhere. And what you would always, 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 always hear would be, take the babies, take the babies. If you cannot take all of us, at least take the babies and make it safe uh, in the sea. The movement of people across national borders is the largest since the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And arguably, as the numbers continue, will we'll be the largest in all of human history in a very short time. The United States can do more, should do more, and I'm confident will do more. Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. This week, we're talking about an important issue that's been largely ignored so far in this election season. Just a few weeks remain before Americans choose a new president. Lately, we've all spent a lot of time focused on Donald Trump and what you might call, at best, his extremely checkered past with women. Angry Trump fans say the press is giving Hillary Clinton a pass as a result and not digging deep enough into her scandals and failures. We're coming to you just before the third and final presidential debate in Las Vegas. One of the topics is supposed to be on foreign policy, which will be a reminder, however brief, that this election is also very much about the world beyond our own borders. This week, we want to take a step back and look at an issue the new United Nations Secretary General and the world will have to address no matter who wins in November, the Syrian refugee crisis. Lower Manhattan is one of the richest places on the planet. The New World Trade Center towers over its fellow skyscrapers. Tourists take selfies with the Bronze Bull of Wall Street and visit the Statue of Liberty on the ferries that crisscross the harbor. It might seem like a jarring place to try to teach people about the plight of the world's refugees. Or maybe it's exactly the right one. The humanitarian group Doctors Without Borders, also known by its French acronym, MSF, is trying to make its work with refugees from places like Syria easier for the public to understand. One way it has done so is through an interactive exhibition touring the United States. It's so overcrowded, the smugglers basically just cram the boats. And the quality is so bad, inside the boats, of course, they don't have life jackets. Very rare. And when they actually have them, it's usually one of these kinds. This is a fake life jacket. It's usually filled with either packing material, straws, which seems familiar but it will suck in the water. So at some point, you will actually be dragged down. I'm a very strong swimmer. I tried many of these things when I'm out training and stuff. Three, four minutes, it, it's hard for me to actually stay afloat. I, I get pulled down. I visited the Forced From Home exhibit when it reached the Battery Park Esplanade in New York. My guided journey began just steps away from a marina sheltering yachts worth more than some people make in a lifetime. My name is Christina. I'm uh, from Greece. I've been working with Doctors Without Borders the last few years and my role was to coordinate uh, the search and rescue operation we had in the Aegean Sea. The exhibition is structured in that way where we have chosen five countries, Burundi, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Syria and Honduras. And we ask uh, from the visitors to imagine what kind of reasons could make them leave their countries? 
And what are some of those reasons that you that people here uh, people here tell you? Always about violence. It's always about war and violence. They say it in different ways. And also when we have school children, it's amazing to hear how they they don't say war. Like for example, I had a child sitting in front of South Sudan board, and he said, "I'm afraid." And I asked him why, and then he said, "Because I'm going to die." The issue has become a political football in the race for U.S. president, a numbers game, with politicians and the public fighting over choices about how many refugees should come in and where they should go. The MSF exhibit shows very different choices, how refugees make decisions about what to keep and what to leave behind as they try to escape a world that's collapsing around them. We ask the visitors with a, a card game to imagine what would be the five items that they would take with them if they had to leave their home. So they can choose between toys, passport, money, water, clothes, medicines. We have uh, cards that shows a dog, their pets. I can forget a, a young uh, girl from Syria that has traveled with her cat and she had nothing else and she just said to everybody that this is my life. I can't live without my cat. And um, there are people like us. I have a dog, and if I had to, to leave my home, I believe that this would be the only thing I would take with me. me Save too. my, my me dog. Too. I have to. Yeah. So you know how it is. You know how it is. And during, our, during the tour, we ask them to leave things behind, because that's how a refugee refugee life looks like. Sometimes you don't have enough space, sometimes you have to live fast, you can't always take all the things you want with you, um, apart from leaving everything else, family members, memories, home. What do they bring with them, or try to bring with them? So you mean the visitors? No, I mean the real people. Ah, the real people, they will have a backpack on them with a few clothes, a cell phone, always, always a cell phone with them, where they uh, will have Wi-Fi, and many times this has been proven life-saving because we have got locations from WhatsApp. They use WhatsApp or Viber to send their location. So we could spot the boat from that. Christina watches as visitors cram themselves into a small inflatable boat to learn about the treacherous crossings the refugees try to make. She's seen the real thing up close. What we were doing in Lesbos was we would be patrolling and we were doing watches and we would see boats coming. There were days that we would just see 70, 80 boats coming uh, just from everywhere. And what you would always, 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 always hear would be take the babies, take the babies. They would just, you know, take them and place them above their heads in a way to show, you know, if you cannot take all of us, at least take the babies and make it safe uh, in the sea. And this is... Uh, like, how many people would go in a boat? This is, this is not a big boat. How many people have you seen in a boat? Uh, this is for 60. 60 people. Six, six zero? Six zero. 60. I just, I, I'm looking here at this boat, there are, I think I counted maybe 15 or 16 people that were in this boat, and you're telling me that that five times that many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
How? Five times. How? And uh, you wouldn't believe when I... I don't know if you would believe me tell you that sometimes we had people coming on the shore and uh, they've been uh, dead on the boat, inside the boat because of asphyxia. So we've lost a boy like that. Uh, three... Uh, three-and-a-half-years-old boy that was passed to our boat during the rescue and was already unconscious and we thought we could save it, but the boy has already passed at that time. Asphyxia from yes. being... From being inside the boat with so many people. We've, we've saved a lot of lives there. We couldn't save them all, but we did a... We did a good job, I think. Helicopters buzz over the Hudson, and joggers dodge the strollers on the Riverwalk as Christina shows me how aid workers and refugees deal with water, with sickness, with shelter. And we ask them to tell us how they imagine that their final destination would look like. So they've been through everything. The visitors, even if they don't know how to describe it or if they don't wish to describe it, they just say safety, security that at least I will have shelter and I could cover my basic needs. We have placed some tents that we see in refugee camps in Somalia, in France, and in Iraq. And people just get shocked by the living conditions. So this, this what we're looking at is what you get if you made it. Exactly, this is what you get if you make it. This is basically just a tarp and some ropes and sticks. Exactly. And different layers of tents to make it more durable as you are exposed in all weather conditions. At the end, of course, people like me get to walk away and go back to our lives. But Christina says this is about learning, not about feeling guilty. Nobody chooses to be born in Burundi or be born in New York. It's not, the aim is not that, it's not to make them feel guilty because they have a good life. What we aim is just to make them more concerned about other people and just imagine how would it be like if they had to live like that and this way be more open in, in their hearts. It, that, that's the goal. It's not... It's not uh, criminalizing their way of life. It's about thinking what it would be like. So when you come across a refugee, think that it could be you. Imagine how you would like to be treated and do the same to others. Has it changed the way you've thought about your own life? Yes, of course. When you join uh, Doctors Without Borders or after your, your first mission, you're never the same again. Never. But in a good sense. In a good sense. I, never, I will never regret this choice. Decisions about how the United States will engage in the battle for the control of Syria will soon fall on the shoulders of a new president. So will our choices about the fate of the men, women, and children trying to escape death and destruction. The divisions there have become divisions here. In the American election, some political factions are warning of a security threat they say comes along with accepting Muslim refugees. 
The other side says America must make good on its promise to welcome the homeless and tempest-tossed to its shores. Whether America opens its hands to these refugees or closes its borders to them will be decided in a matter of weeks. For a different view on Syria and the refugee crisis, we spoke with George Mitchell, who, as Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 1995, oversaw Senate approval of NAFTA and the formation of the World Trade Organization. He's well known on this side of the Atlantic for his involvement in the peace process in Northern Ireland as well. Senator Mitchell, 400,000 people have been killed in Syria now and about 7 million displaced. There are around 4 million Syrian refugees outside their own country. Can you ever remember a presidential election taking place against the backdrop of such a terrible conflict when the details of America's response to it have been discussed so little? Well, I think that Syria is not alone in important issues not being discussed in the American political campaign. Your point, however, is well taken. It has not been much discussed in the campaign, but so also has climate change not been discussed, one of the most serious issues confronting not only the United States, but the world. Uh, Instead, uh, the American people have been uh, treated to a series of uh, personal attacks, beginning in the Republican nominating contest, which stretched on for well over a year, to what I would call inflammatory and incendiary statements that don't propose any solution at all. And so, Uh, I think many Americans share the view that you expressed, that uh, Syria should have been much more discussed. But I think even more Americans think that a whole host of critical issues facing our country and the world should have been more discussed. And hopefully all of them, including Syria, will be the focus of some discussion at the debate. And how much of that has to do with the fact that Donald Trump is the candidate? And how much is it to do with the kind of general feeling of frustration with politics that you see in a lot of Western countries at the moment? I think both are factors. Uh, There are many other factors as well. I I don't think it all can be laid uh, at Mr. Trump's doorstep. As you point out, uh, there is this kind of turmoil and upheaval in other countries as well. And it, it stems from the fact that the technological revolution, as did the Industrial Revolution, is transforming societies, creating unprecedented wealth, but the wealth is not being distributed throughout most societies. It is increasingly being concentrated, and vast numbers of citizens, not just Americans, but people everywhere, feel that they are not the beneficiaries of the technological revolution, but rather are its victims. I'm I'm an American, I'm speaking specifically about the United States, but the principle is not limited to the United States. It it exists in virtually every society. Let's get back to Syria. Given there's a bit of a vacuum where there ought to be a discussion of what the next president's policy should be, let's try and fill that. America's already pursued an attempt at a ceasefire agreement that stuck for a little bit and then fell apart. What do you think should happen next? Well, the the situation is very confusing and conflicted, independent of the ceasefire agreement. It may contribute to that, but it's not the creator of the confusion. It is the complex circumstances there. I do think that uh, the United States uh, has not been as active as it should have been uh, in addressing the conflict. Although 
I think it's fair to say in the defense of the United States and the other powers that the circumstances are so incredibly complex, not just in Syria because you can't take that conflict in complete isolation of the surrounding countries because it is in part uh, a, a proxy conflict by external powers operating in Syria, compounding and aggravating the already serious differences and effects that are occurring in Syria. And I hope that even within uh, President Obama's uh, remaining months that he will see fit to take more aggressive action uh, without committing large-scale numbers of American ground troops uh, to address the dual problems that we face. The, the first is, of course, the immediate uh, threat posed by ISIS. The second, however, is uh, the disastrous regime uh, uh, of President Bashar al-Assad uh, that has been at the root of so much of the devastation that have been wreaked on the Syrian people. Uh, I hope, for example, that we could take more aggressive action to prevent the barrel bombing uh, by helicopter or other aircraft of Syrian schools and hospitals and institutions by their own government, acts of barbarism that I think are out of place in any era and certainly in the 21st century. Senator, you work with both President Obama and Hillary Clinton on the Middle East. What do you think she would do differently if she were elected president as regards Syria? I think she's already made clear that uh, she would have been more active, both diplomatically and in a limited way militarily, than President Obama has been. It's been widely reported that she and others within the administration favored a more active policy, and she has expressed that during the course of her campaign. So I think she would attempt a more active involvement to try to bring, bring the conflict to an end to achieve the twin goals of defeating ISIS and making certain that Bashar al-Assad does not remain permanently in power. E easy to state, but extraordinarily difficult and complex to achieve because of the dynamics in the region and the, uh, uh, the various conflicts. Can I ask about Syrian refugees in the US? It's a subject that became political early on in the campaign when Donald Trump jumped on it. What's your view of whether the U.S. has done enough to resettle Syrian refugees? Has America been pulling its weight there, or do you think the country should have done more? Well, as an American whose mother was an immigrant and whose father was the orphan son of immigrants, uh, I don't take kindly to the view that the United States hasn't pulled its weight on this or that issue. The reality is, of course, is that the United States has historically been the most open society, not only in the world, but I would argue in all of human history, that we have taken in more people from more places around the world than any other country, and arguably than most other countries combined. Uh, we've done so for a variety of motives, most notably our own self-interest, because people who've come to this country have contributed so much the three most successful business enterprises in the United States and arguably in the world are Apple, Amazon, and Google. And Apple was created by Steve Jobs, whose father was born in Syria, Amazon by Jeff Bezos, whose adoptive father was born in Cuba, and Sergey Brin was a co-founder of Google, and he was born in Russia. 
Well, no one would argue that we'd be a better country if they hadn't been admitted. They've contributed mightily. The problem in our country is that the debate is now focused entirely on keeping people out and build walls and prevent people from coming. We have to limit the numbers, but in our self-interest, we want people to come who can contribute to our society. And one of our objectives also is to take in more people who are oppressed and persecuted and don't have a real home, and that really does represent uh, what's happening in Syria, but it's happened in Africa also. It's happened in many other countries around the world. The movement of people across national borders is the largest since the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And arguably, as the numbers continue, will we'll be the largest in all of human history in a very short time. The United States can do more, should do more, and I'm confident will do more. But so does everyone else in the world have to play a role in this because it is not an isolated problem anymore that affects just one open country. One last question on Syria. How do you think the war in Syria is likely to end? Which I guess is a different question from how you'd like it to end, to which the answer presumably is swiftly. All conflicts ultimately do come to an end, and the war in Syria will come to an end, I hope, sooner rather than later. Uh, I think what is likely is that there will be continuing conflict there because the circumstances underlying the current conflict will not be fully resolved. I think rather than being able to predict what will happen, I, I, I would rather say what I think won't happen. And I think that it's not likely to be a clear and decisive victory of one group over another but that internal conflict will continue for a very long time, as it has in most countries that are going through transition periods. I think it's unlikely that Bashar al-Assad will be able to continue in power over the long term. Too much blood has been spilled. Too many Syrian children have been killed by their own government. Uh, and I think there's going to have to be some kind of compromise or coalition government. But lest we in the West be condescending toward the people of the Middle East who are going through a transition as a, the political order established 100 years ago in the aftermath of the First World War has now collapsed, it takes a long time for societies to deal with these issues. I think in Syria the safest thing one can say is that it's likely to be an indecisive outcome, but an essential element is that Assad will no longer be able to continue in power, and there's likely to be some made-up or agreed-upon method of power-sharing that will enable them to move forward. Senator Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Habachak. Thanks, Alan. And thanks to our special guest producer, John Marston, and to everyone who listens. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. I'm John Priddo with The Economist or at John Priddo on Twitter. See you next week. 